Welcome to Amici, news and insight from the New York courts. I'm John Carr. As we close out Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we're honored to welcome to the program Charlotte Watson, Executive Director of the New York State Judicial Committee on Women in the Courts. Charlotte has been crusading to end violence against women for virtually her entire life. She previously served as Executive Director of the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence. She was co-chair of the Downstate Coalition for Crime Victims, vice president and legislative committee chair for the New York State Coalition Against Domestic Violence, president of the Grayson County, Texas Women's Crisis Center, and she's led numerous committees and coalitions to address violence against women. She is currently a member of the Crime Victims Legal Network Advisory Committee and recently posted an article in the New York Crime Victims blog describing her personal and professional journey which began as a child. Okay. Charlotte, thank you for coming on the program. Now, now, when, when did you first become aware of the incidents of domestic violence? Well, John, thanks so much for having me. I was born in 1953, so I grew up in the mid-50s and the early 70s. I grew up in a small Texas town. It, we had about 7,000, 7,500 residents, and I, my grandmother was our matriarch, and she had raised her her children as a single mother at a time when that just didn't happen. So I had a very different experience, I think, than the average person growing up. She was a hairdresser by day and a cattlewoman by night. So I would watch her all day in the beauty shop fixing women's hair and then go with her to the farm at night to feed the cows and take care of the cows. And I grew up on the stories of how men would come to her to her beauty shop and try to basically cheater on a deal selling a cow or buying a cow until finally she would say to them i'll tell you what go outside and i'm going to go put on my pants and i'll meet you in the street we'll settle this thing man to man so i grew up on stories like that from my grandmother about how she handled difficult situations of really injustice and and what today we call sexism and then i would see her change women's hairstyles and hair colors and give them a little money. She'd buy something from them, a trinket or something, so they'd have some cash to help them get out of town unnoticed. And she would always say, we would always hear, always think, that this woman had married one of those. And that phrase, one of those, even today, is something that women can relate to, that people understand. She married someone who was abusive toward her, tried to control her, maybe physically violent with her. And she had nowhere to go, no, no, you know, Nothing she could do but to try to find a friend or relative to get to. When did it occur to you that there ought to be a better support system than a uh, hairdresser running essentially an underground railroad for abused women? Well, you know, to me growing up, I could see this happening and I would think it didn't feel right. It just seemed wrong. But it also just seemed like the way life was. This was not uncommon. It was just a part of the fabric. You know, you go out on on Friday night to the movies if you're a teenager. You know, it's like different things that that just were part of life. This was just a part of life. It's how life was. And so later on, I was working at Texas Instruments. There were, uh, Texas Instruments is a huge factory with mostly women working in it. Men are the supervisors and the managers and the women were kind of the workers. And so I would see women come to work with black eyes and you know, missing time and the excuse that they would give wouldn't quite make sense. But we just all assumed that, you know, 
there was an undercurrent that was happening that we kind of understood, but we never required people to reveal that about themselves. So, you know, so we would understand about women and the stories that they would tell us about why they didn't come to work didn't always make sense. And then I worked on a machine that required two people to operate the machine. I worked with a woman named Yvonne. Yvonne was one of the nicest, like, you know, we worked 11, we worked from seven at night till seven in the morning on this machine. And Yvonne was the kind of person who set the tone for everyone working in our group. She had a nice smile on her face. She was always uplifting and joyful and warm. And one night she didn't come to work. Very unusual for her. She never missed work. She was always happy to come and tell us what happened with her kids that day. She, you know, just the kind of kind of kept us going at night. So when she didn't show up to work, she didn't call in sick or anything. We knew something was really at least off. We didn't know how long it was. She didn't come to work for two weeks. And after two weeks, her husband finally took the police to the dry well where he had dumped her body after he had taken a frying pan and beat her to death with it in the kitchen, beat her head in, in front of the children. Oh my God. He took her limp body, he took her limp body, took it to the pickup truck, put it in the pickup, put the kids in the pickup with her, took her out to this field and dumped her body in a dry well. How did that affect you? You were a young woman and, and you encountered this. How did that affect you? Well, it made me exceedingly sad. I mean, it was just a tragedy that this happened to this this very extraordinary woman and then to her children. And it made me furious because how how many women just in that one facility where I was working were experiencing violence, coming to work with black eyes and being harmed and nobody asking questions, nothing happening about it. And we sat there. Now, Yvonne never indicated anything was wrong at home. Like I said, she loved her kids. She focused on the positive. She talked about her children. So it was a shock to us when this all came about. But nobody asked questions. Nobody did anything. And someone I cared very much about was murdered. And so I became very furious about that. And I just, when the opportunity came up not that long later uh, to do something, then I was ready to do something, whatever it took, to change the conditions that we, that we lived in so that this didn't happen again. I get the sense that maybe if someone had spoken up, someone had asked, someone had inquired, maybe this would have been avoided. I think it's possible it could have been avoided if we'd had a different environment. But what we're talking about is if we'd had a different society, because we, you know, we focus on things and, and we've always had to, to battle this. We tend to focus on individuals and individual problems and solutions to those. So it's not just enough to, to think about if, you know, if people had, had spoken up, would something different have happened? It's that the fabric of our society was such that it didn't have the same kind of meaning. So we always look for what did she do to make this happen? You know, why did that woman have the black eye? Well, you know, was she did she mouth off at her at her husband or a boyfriend and he popped her you know, for it? I mean, that's how people would think of it. Right. So what did she do to make him? do this to her. 
And that's that points to a society that has a set of values that really needs to be changed. And and we've been working for for decades through what we call the women's movement to do that. I mean, we can go all the way back to when we didn't even have the right to vote. We finally achieved that. And then all this sort of subtext of women's lives came out that women were not safe at home, that women couldn't get credit cards. And you can go on down the list of lines of how sexism played a role. And so we, until we could really learn and talk about the role of sexism in our society and begin to address that at that level, uh, I'm not sure how much difference it would have really made if, if someone could have spoken because there were no resources. We didn't have shelters. We didn't have hotlines. We, what would we offer to someone other than what my grandmother did and so many other women did? Here, let me help you get from here to a friend's house or a relative's house where maybe you can start over again. Mm-hmm. So they could have helped her run. Now, you mentioned the women's movement. Uh, when, how did you discover that you were a, quote, feminist? <laughs> you know, that's such a funny, a funny thing to me because I was just going, my grandmother had a saying, and her saying was right's right, wrong's wrong. Ain't that right? So that was kind of one of my guides, you know, and I thought this, what was happening with women was just wrong, you know, it's just the framework I had for it. And then I was working at Texas Instruments and I was now in a different job and I was writing specifications and I thought, well, I could probably do a better job if I took a course on this. And I went to the the local uh, junior college and the professor I had there actually was, was a feminist. I didn't know what a feminist was, but she said to me, she said, Charlotte, you're a feminist. And I, and I said, Oh, thanks. I had no idea what the word even meant. I went home and looked, you know, tried to look it up and understand what did that mean. And I thought, Oh, well, that's right. I am. I'm a feminist. That, that definition, a woman who thinks that women are equal or ought to be equal is a feminist. I thought, well, that's so true. Who wouldn't be a feminist? Uh, so that's how I found out that, you know, that I was a feminist. And then the same person invited me to the National Organization of Women chapter, which was a newly uh, formed chapter. In our, and now I've moved from my town of 7,500 people to a larger town of 30,000 people. But in our county, we, they had formed this now chapter. And she asked me if I would get involved with that because they were working together, all volunteers, to open a women's crisis line, a uh, line meaning like a hotline. Uh, actually, they were working to open a rape crisis line. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, there are women who are being beaten at home and they need help too. They need someone to reach out to who can help them be free of that. So they, she said, sure. And we changed it to the women's crisis line. And that's, that's how I found out I was a feminist. And it was the first time I saw a, a place where there were a group of women coming together, willing to take on society, take on our community, and form some helpful responses for women who were being either raped, sexually abused, or assaulted, or beaten by an intimate partner. And so when you bucked this culture, when you tried to push water up a hill, were you greeted with uh, open arms by the community, the small community that you were living in? No, you know, we we were so naive. First we thought we thought we were seeing something that nobody else was seeing, right? We didn't we didn't think that the 
religious leaders in our community were aware of what was happening in their congregations. We didn't think that the police knew what was happening or they would be making arrests. So we tried to go and talk to the police and get them to make arrests in these cases. And we discovered that they were very well aware of domestic violence and they, uh, they weren't on the same page with us. The same thing for the clergy. And before we knew it, this was going on across the country. It wasn't only in our small community. Feminists and women who wanted to, to stop men's violence against women, essentially, at that time, was we were called man-hating, castrating, ball-busting, lesbian bitches. And we were determined to destroy both the church and the family. And we were like, wow, all we really want to do is have home be a safe place for women. And we want to say that men need to stop raping women. Just stop. Man-hating, ball-busting, castrating, lesbian bitches. That's who we were. <laughs> and sometimes we were called lesbians, and some of us were. Most of us weren't. But, you know, that's just the times. Now, in 1984, I believe you got into uh, law enforcement. How, how did that happen? So, I, again, working at Texas Instruments, I was working in the safety department, and my boss was a Vietnam vet, and he was he was a... He'd started a fire brigade. It was kind of, again, people working at Texas Instruments who were uh, volunteered to be on the fire brigade. And so I volunteered. Me and maybe one or two other women volunteered and uh, learned how to fight industrial fires. That was an interesting experience. And then he started a reserve police unit within the, within the, the city's police department. Now, the reserve unit was basically a place where you could be a volunteer police officer. You went through the same uh, police academy, the same rookie school, you got the same training as a regular uniformed officer. Everything was the same except you had no insurance while you were on duty and you had to buy your own service weapon to meet the specs of the department. So anyway, so he said, Charlotte, why don't you join the, the police reserves? He was, he'd started it, he was the, the leader of it, the chief of it. And I said, oh, Frank, you don't want me. I'm a complete pacifist. And you wouldn't want me to be your partner. I'd get you killed. He said, well, why don't you uh, go to the rookie school and complete the rookie school? He said, I know, I know from being uh, a, a Vietnam vet, if it's your life or my life, I'm going to prevail with my life. I'll do whatever it takes to stay alive. That's human nature. I said, I, I thought about it a lot. Not me, but I'll go to the rookie school. Maybe it'll be a way to build some bridges between the women's crisis line and law enforcement. And uh, so I said, okay. He said, you just go see at the end of it. If you still don't want to, you don't think it's for you, then I'll respect that. I said, okay, great. So I went and uh, I learned a lot about power. I learned a lot about uh, law enforcement. And I it, it did build bridges between uh, our hotline and our women's organization and law enforcement, the, the sheriff came, and in our community, he was a he was a, a famous kind of guy. You know, he was a character as a sheriff, Jack Driscoll. He came to teach a class, and he looked out, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm here to learn to be a cop. He said, do you really mean that? I said, yes, I really mean that. He said, okay, now I know who I'm going to call when I have a rape. So it began to chip away at that kind of divide us and them and and build a bridge. Did it change the world overnight? Of course it didn't, but it made a difference. And then I, then I became a cop. You know, it was at night, weekends, I would report to duty, 
get my patrol car and drive around. One night there was a fight at the bowling alley and I was on in my car by myself, my patrol car. I get the call, fight in the parking lot at the bowling alley. So I go, it's a man and a woman and uh, they're both intoxicated and they're outside and it's loud and uh, he's berating her or whatever. So I decide I'm going to, we had a public intoxication law. I was going to arrest him for public intoxication. And uh, we're dri- driving him in, into the station, and he starts talking to me, he, you know, he, about his wife. And I said, well, let me get this straight. I said, you married her because you thought she was a pretty good-looking old broad, right? That's the way he talked, right? So he said, well, yeah. And I said, now, you go to the bowling alley. One of your friends is smiling at her. She's smiling back. They're laughing. They're caring. You know, they're just in a social setting. So she's, you know, you married a good-looking woman. Your friend is laughing and smiling at her. She's smiling back. And for that, you're, you're going to attack her? He said, oh, I guess it's my problem, isn't it? So did I turn that man around? I don't think I probably did, but I think I gave him something to think about. And we, you know, we, for public intoxication, we would put someone in a cell for four hours, essentially allow them some time to sober up, and then they'd go home. So he wasn't harmed by that, and uh, it, at least someone in authority said to him, maybe this is about you. Did you, did you uh, ever arrest him again? Never arrested him again, but I never arrested anybody more than once. In other words, you just didn't, you know, just didn't, didn't have happen. the occasion to, yeah. So well, I, but hope, to me, hopefully, it's, hopefully it's, he was not arrested again. Hopefully he was not arrested again, and hopefully they worked out everything, and including their propensity to celebrate too much. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did how did you get to uh, to New York? Well, so I was sitting at Texas Instruments. I was doing this work in law enforcement, which I loved. I was, you know, the thing thing I don't think people realize is at the time when we were when we started working to help women be free of sexual violence and domestic violence, we didn't have those words. We didn't have anything like that. And there was no field, there was no, you know, there was no funding, there was no hot, you know, there, there was just nothing. There was just nothing out there. And uh, we created this as a response to try to help women and at the same time to try to address the societal structure around sexism and bring that to the forefront and create equality for women. So all of that was going on, and I was spending all of my lunch breaks, all of my nights, all of my weekends working on domestic violence and sexual assault. Working meaning if a woman was in the emergency room at the hospital or a child, the hospital would call our number. We would show up and try to provide support. If a woman was being battered, she would call our number, and we would talk to her over the phone. So I decided that that was really more my work than what I was doing at, at Texas Instruments. I'd worked there for over 13 years. And so I thought either either becoming a, a, a law enforcement officer or someone working on domestic violence was would be better for me. And uh, the reason I didn't become a law enforcement officer in Texas was because I could score highly on the on the test, but I could never climb jump up over a six foot wall. 
I could do everything but that. I could do all the agility stuff, everything, but I couldn't get over that six-foot wall. And I would go to Dallas every Sunday and get the New York Times because I had friends who were from New York and uh, that I'd met along the way. And my personality seemed to fit better with them. They understood my humor. That you know, It just seemed like a, a good fit. So I thought, why not? Why not try? I mean, New York was like another planet to me, but uh, I went, found a, a, an ad in the, the one ads, as we used to call them, in the New York Times, and uh, was for a, an executive director of the Yonkers Women's Task Force shelter. They called it the shelter, and they had asked for a, a social work, an MSW social worker, and. Uh, to be their director. So I thought, well, it's going to cost me a quarter to send them my resume and uh, we'll see what happens. So I did, I did, I sent it to them and they called me for an interview. They said, be on South Broadway in Yonkers this date and this time. And I said, okay. I had no idea where Yonkers was anywhere in the world. And so I, but I made it, I showed up on time and interviewed with a committee of people who, as it turned out, their story kind of paralleled my my, my uh, progression. They had gone, to, in 1977, they had gone to the International Year of the Woman Conference in Houston. And it was uh, just set them on fire to come back to Yonkers and do something for women in the community. And they had opened a women's center using what was at that time called CETA funds, federal funds. They no longer exist. When that, that funding was running out, during that time, they had opened a shelter. So they needed someone to come and run their shelter. And they really, they were now members, they, they were really feminist. And they wanted a feminist, is really what they wanted, who had the ability to run a nonprofit organization, which I had started and had grown it, it, tremendously back in my small town. So I talked about who I was and what I could do. And uh, I got a call back in a couple of weeks and they offered me the job. And so I said, okay. And they wanted me to come right then. I said, well, I've got to have a couple of weeks to give notice and pack up. And, and I, I drove up here and uh, with my couple of cats, we did just fine driving up here. This is an aside, John, but a funny story was I was kind of green when it came to understanding big city life and and I first I couldn't find Yonkers because it was we didn't there were no city limit signs but I I needed to find a hotel to stay in and I see on the side of the road there's a Yonkers motor in and then I didn't see anything else so I went to the gas station got the yellow pages because we didn't have cell phones and internet and things like that and I called the Holiday Inn they wanted this was 19 uh, I forgot what year it was, 1986, January 1986, and uh, the Holiday Inn went $86 a night, and I was like, wow, I don't know how long I'm going to need to stay in a hotel, and I don't have that much money, so I, so I saw a place down the road. I go back to the Yonkers Motor Inn. I go in. I say to the guy behind the desk, what are your rates? He says, 20 bucks an hour. <laughs> I said, 20 bucks an hour? Can you stay all night? He said, sure. I said, well, how much is that? He said, 40 bucks. I said, oh, let's see, 20 bucks an hour, 40 bucks a night. I'm going to stay all night. 
okay. So he gives me a room. We go to the room. My cats went right under the bed. They wouldn't come out for anything. And I was like, oh, I don't know where I am, <laughs> but it's not where I've been. You weren't, you weren't, you weren't in Kansas anymore. <laughs> I wasn't in Kansas anymore. And the next day I called the board president and she said, where are you? I'm at the Yonkers Motor Inn and I hear a gasp and she says, oh, I've got to find another place. <laughs> Okay, great. That, that was how that got started. Now, how did you end up uh, with the Committee on Women in the Courts? So, well, I ended up working. Uh, I built an or The Yonkers Women's Task Force called their program The Shelter. And over time, we changed that. They, they began to realize that they had been doing a lot of different kinds of women's educational programs in the community. And they realized that their main responsibility was the shelter. And that's what they were focused on. So I ran that for like 13 years, and we changed the name to My Sister's Place and focused on domestic violence. And from there, I did a lot of work with the State Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and I was the chair of their legislative committee and eventually vice president of the board. And we actually changed, I would say almost most, but at least many of the laws on domestic violence uh, during, that, during those 13 to 20 years your period. Uh, so I was just fortunate to work with a lot of great women across the state and we worked together to make these changes. That's and then I, went, then I went to work for Governor Pataki as the uh, executive director of the Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence. And I worked for him until the end of his term. And then, you know, a new governor came in and, you know, they bring in their own people, kind of clean house. So I ended up I had done a lot of work with the court system and, you know, worked to make, when I was leaving my sister's place, we were starting the domestic violence courts. And so I made a, uh, an, you know, I made a relationship with the court system. So I ended up coming to work at the Judicial Institute for the courts and worked there for a long time until the Till the budget crisis, and then I ended up working in the Office of Policy and Planning on domestic violence and, and human trafficking. So that's how that's what I was doing. And Jill Goodman was the executive director of the New York State Judicial Committee on Women in the Courts. And Jill decided to retire. And Judge Ellerin asked me if I would consider uh, working with her when Jill left. That's Judge Betty, Betty Ellerin. Judge uh, Judge Betty Weinberg Ellerin. And uh, I said, of course, Judge, let me check with Judge Kluger, though. She was my policy and planning judge, Judy Kluger. So she said, oh, I've already talked to her. You'll do both jobs. I said, OK, great. I'd be so honored to do that. So that's that's how I got into the Committee on Women in the Courts in terms. Of, I was already a member of the committee, but in terms of working for for the committee, that's how that came about. And, you know, I, I have so much respect for this committee long before I ever even knew it, ex before I ever knew there was anything happening in New York because I was in Texas, this, these people were already at work trying to change the court system and make it more responsive. You know, the committee really, the, there's sometimes confusion. The Committee on Women in the Courts is not designed to intervene in individual cases. Sometimes we get letters from a party that says this judge didn't, do the right thing by me, essentially. I mean, and they'll give details about the custody decision or, you know, something along those lines. And 
we are not allowed to intervene in those cases. We have to say, I'm sorry, we can't do that. We, you know, you're, you have to file an appeal or there's a legal process. You have to work with your lawyer on that. But what we do is kind of look more globally, you know, uh, domestic violence courts, integrated domestic violence courts, human trafficking courts. Those are systemic responses that help to build expertise in a particular uh, area of the law in terms of the judicial response. So this committee focuses on you know, equal justice and uh, fairness for women, for women and leveling the playing field. But they also work to increase the number of women judges. There were not very many women judges back in the early to mid 1980s, and now there are. And so there's just been a, everything you think of that has something to do with, uh, with women the women in the courts committees probably had a, a hand in it somewhere. We were very involved in language access and improving the, you know, the language access programming in inside the court system. Children's centers. Uh, Judge Ellerin had gone to uh, to someone who was working in a committee with Judge Kay and asked her for ideas. And she said, "Well, you know, children need nurseries. She calls them nurseries inside the courthouse." Because, you know, a, a woman comes in with her kids to court and maybe it's family court and she doesn't want to tell the whole story of what's happening at home in front of the children. So she said there needs to be a safe nurturing place where kids can be. And children's centers were started. So you look out across the, the landscape of the courts. Now we're working on getting lactation space, as an example. You know, breastfeeding is much more common these days than it, than it used to be. And women working in the courts, women coming to court, need to have a place where they can be comfortable. Um, we're looking at uh, diaper changing stations and bathrooms. You know, you've got a baby and, you know, you, right now you maybe you have to put the baby on the bench out in the hallway and change the diaper. Just seems like there should be something better than that. So from little things to big things in terms of uh, how people might think of it, the Committee on Women in the Courts is looking at that. There are other things that we do. If you go on our website, you'll find a lot of information. We have pamphlets. We have a pamphlet that's very popular called Fair Speech. It kind of talks about the, you know, the, the need for being gender neutral in your speech and how to do that. Uh, one called On the Bench, which gives some scenarios that, uh, for judges to think about how to, how to handle. We have books. We have the Lawyer's Manual on Domestic Violence, which is very popular among lawyers. And uh, we have the Lawyer's Manual on Human Trafficking. These are, you know, edited volumes where lawyers and the practicing lawyers in the community have written chapters and submitted that. So we do, you know, we do a number of things. And uh, if you go on our website, you'll see those things. We've done programs. We uh, led the effort to, for a national summit on human trafficking for chief judges. We had 46 chief judges in four territories uh, show up at this conference, and it, it really made a uh, a big change, I think, in how the courts look at human trafficking. And then I think one of the key things that we have are our local committees. You know, because you're a co-chair of the local committee, the third judicial district chair. Yes, I am. And yeah, so I, the the state committee really relies on on the local committee. So every judicial district in the state of New York, in the city of New York. Every way the courts are configured, lower criminal, supreme criminal, all the, they all have a uh, local gender fairness committee. Those committees are the sort of the, the lifeblood of, of 
learning about what's happening in the communities across the state and providing information and education to the courts and court uh, people who work in the court system. And so we, the, the local committees are critical. They have, I can't tell you how many programs a year to educate people across the state. Well, that's, that's quite, a, quite a portfolio. Now, in your article in the Crime Victims blog, reflecting on your nearly 50 years as an advocate, you said the, quote, movement has lost its connection to its roots, close quote. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about how we came to understand that we couldn't really have an impact just by responding to individuals alone. It's important to do that, but we had to peel the, the layers back and see what was at the root of this. And at the root of this was sexism. And we really needed to address the oppression of women if we were ever in the, and we needed to create equality for women if we were ever going to be able to do anything about the harms that were being perpetrated against individual women. So, you know, I, th I think that that's what we worked to do. And we worked together with so many different other issues at that time. We worked on racism. We worked on uh, ending the Vietnam War. When we worked on some, we worked on uh, the war in Central America. There were wars going on. There was an organization called CSPES. So we worked with lots of different groups of people. We all worked together because we wanted to create a place where all people were human beings. All people were treated equally. And then along came the HIV crisis, and a lot of the, the momentum we had, we just, we just stopped because we had to help our gay brothers when they were abandoned by their parents, by their families, and they were dying from HIV AIDS. Uh, it was women in the women's movement who wrote the first brochure, uh, went to the government and said, you have to do something, wrote a brochure about what HIV is to try to educate uh, the men in the gay community. So back then we were, that's what a movement does. A movement responds at a very granular grassroots level and from a, an ethos. So our ethos was about equality and for us women, it was about equality for women. And now out of that grew uh, a response to domestic violence and a response to sexual violence. And out of that grew what or developed into what I see more as an industry. So we were creating a response to something that was wrong that needed to be corrected. Uh, now there, we were successful, and now people come out. They they go to school. They come out of school, and they and they want to go to work at the domestic violence agency or the sexual assault agency, and they 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 have a job in this agency that, that is addressing uh, people who are harmed by domestic violence or people who are harmed by sexual assault. And they think of it as like a nine to five job, more or less. They're going to work. And, but they're going to work in terms of, of what people do when they think of work as, as a job, not what people think of in a movement where it's about changing the world, mm -hmm. changing society, and it's it's a part of every single thing you do. It's it's the it's your fiber. So I think that that this work now has kind of lost its connection 
to the underpinnings that, that led to its creation. And when we first started out working on domestic violence, we really thought that people didn't just didn't understand uh, that human, a man and a woman in a, in a relationship where there was abuse, just didn't know how to communicate, how to fight fairly. And if we could send them to family therapy or couples counseling or something like that, again, we're focused on that into those individuals, that they could learn these skills and that this would take care of that problem. We learned that, in fact, it put the victim in much more risk because she couldn't go into the family session with her abusive partner and really tell everything that was happening because she was worried about paying a price for that later. So we ended, we ended up, we learned uh, if family therapy had worked, if mediation had worked, those kinds of tools like that, we would have been the greatest proponents of it. Our goal was to end men's violence against women. And if, if therapy would do it, we were 100% for it. We tried better education programs. We thought, well, these are men who were socialized in a certain way. We'll teach them uh, about that, teach them a new way to think, a new way to be, and offer them a chance to, to make this change. And uh, we, But we couldn't change men's behavior. The men had to change their own behavior. So because our society hasn't taken this on as a whole, those programs are ahead of their time. So if, if once upon a time, I was invited to train all the probation officers in Westchester County Probation Department, and I would do them domestic violence one-on-one, one-on-one is what I would do, and, and I would talk about the same sort of thing, about we need men to set standards so that, that men would feel ostracized if they acted outside. We need to change the norm of what it means to be a man. And I remember one man came up to me afterward. He said, you know, Charlotte, you know, he says, it's, not, it's not good. He said, you know, I, I'm a no, he said, I'm a professional boxer, a semi-professional boxer, me and my brother. And he said, this is just not going to work. Said, okay, listen, so what I ask everybody to do is go out in the world and try this on, see if it fits. If it doesn't, throw it out. If it does, keep it. Keep it. So I ran into this guy one day on the street, on the sidewalk in White Plains, and he said, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. I said, okay, what's up? He said, you know what you said about how we need to set limits and, and if a guy comes in and he's bragging about how he treats the, his wife or the woman in his life, that we tell him he can't do that. If he does, we're not going to be friends with him anymore. I said, yeah. And he said, well, I thought that was just a bunch of, you know, crap. And he said, but I got to tell you, he said, at my gym, where I, you know, I work out, you know, I'm a semi-pro professional boxer and it's a real macho world. And my friend, my best friend came to me and he was talking about what he was doing at home. And I said, you can't do that. If you do, we're not going to be friends. And he came back the next week and he started telling me again what he'd done that week. And I said, well, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I told you you can't do that. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And he said, it took about two weeks. His friend came back and he said, he said, I'll do whatever it takes. You know, you're my best friend. I, I can't. You know, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to restore our relationship. And he began to think about how he treated his wife. So it's it's by men changing this, those standards that's going to really make a difference. And that's that's the level of change we have to have in society. And that doesn't really happen. So it's, it's not really happening. But what I see is that there's a rediscovery now of old things that we tried and failed. 
those old things like family systems therapy that, uh, inter, you know, intervening that way is sort of now sounds a lot like what we're calling restorative justice. And so I, I, I worry about that. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd I hope to be wrong. Well, it's, 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 it's an effort to change the culture, and that's kind of what you've been doing uh, for all of your life. What I see happening right now and what's the movement versus the, uh, the industry the industry is focused on changing individual men. Let me help this man. It's not necessarily focused on looking at sexism. To me, sexism and racism are of the same seed. Sure. Most of our forms of oppression are of the same seed. And we're not going to end racism by helping the person of color who's attacked uh, alone. We need to help that person. But our challenging all of us to think about the privileges that we carry because we have this color of skin or or because we have this particular gender versus that gender. Those are the challenges that we have to face as a whole, as a society. Then those individual interventions will make sense in the life of that of that person who's who's acting out. Well, that's a powerful message and a, and a, and a wonderful place to stop. So, Charlotte, I want to thank you for all you do and all you've done. And I'm looking forward to all you're going to do in the future for the court system and the people of the state of New York. Thank you. Thank you, John.